Welcome again to Change Your Mind About You, where we are on a journey together to awaken to our true identity. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, and today we will begin examining the events associated with Jesus' crucifixion to determine what else there is we can learn from it. In the previous episode, we learned why Jesus was crucified. The brutal, unjust treatment he received as an innocent man by the ruling establishment did have a noble purpose at its core. Coupled with his resurrection, it was designed to teach us that life is eternal. It cannot be destroyed. Humanity could indeed kill the body using the most brutal of means to do so. But it cannot kill you. That's because each of us is not a body, but rather a soul. That is what Jesus meant when he told his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. To destroy what God created in his image, then, in his image and likeness, is impossible. Jesus proved that through his crucifixion and resurrection. He also proved that our near-universal fear of death is unfounded. He was teaching us that the belief in the permanence of death is merely an illusion of a split mind. So all of this that we just mentioned summarizes why Jesus was crucified. But how did he handle the entire process? What was he attempting to teach us as he went through this ordeal? What aspects of his character did he demonstrate to us for our learning? In the previous episode, we saw how he freely spoke about what was to happen to him both in person and and during prayer prior to the event. In this episode, we'll look now at the event itself to see what Jesus was teaching us through his experience. Let's begin now by observing how Jesus responded to the betrayal of Judas. This was pretty much where it all began. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26 and verses 47 through 50. We read there that while he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Verse 50. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. It's clear from this scene that the chief priests anticipated the possibility of a violent confrontation. So they sent a large crowd armed with the swords and clubs. Now when Judas approached Jesus to have him arrested, he greeted him with a kiss. Now a kiss at that time was a symbol of acceptance and friendship. 
But here, Judas chooses it as a symbol to prompt Jesus' arrest. To say that our friend Judas is demonstrating his inner conflict here is an understatement. Yet Jesus undoubtedly knows this. So how does he reply to Judas? He says, Do what you came for, friend. The Greek word translated friend here is hetarios, H-E-T-A-I-R-O-S, which means comrade or partner. In other words, it signifies a close relationship. Jesus here demonstrates that he's not angry with Judas. He had foreknowledge that Judas was going to do this. We read that back in Matthew chapter uh, 26 in verses 23 to 25. He was telling Judas here by addressing him in this way that the betrayal had absolutely no effect on how Jesus felt about him. There was absolutely no judgment on Jesus' part. Judas was totally forgiven. So as the story continues, Judas has him arrested. Now what happens next, we see why the chief priests sent an armed mob to arrest Jesus. But notice how Jesus responds to what takes place. We're going to read now in verses 51 through 54 of Matthew 26. So Jesus gets arrested, and with that, one of, the, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Verse 52, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Here this disciple believes he's showing Jesus his allegiance by defending him against being arrested. But Jesus corrects him, and for a couple of reasons. He first admonishes his companion to put the sword away, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Here he's concerned for his companion's well-being. Jesus, in effect, is telling the disciple that to attack someone else is to attack himself. The disciple, in his zeal, could not see that because he thought he was being devoted to the well-being of his master by defending an innocent man against an unjust arrest. But what Jesus says next informs the disciple that he does not need to be defended. There's nothing to fear. If Jesus thought protection was necessary, then he could call on the Father to provide him with the aid that he needed. But Jesus understood that the way things were happening was exactly the way the Father revealed it to him in Scripture. So with the insistence of Jesus, the disciples stand down and allow Jesus to be brought into custody. Custody, rather. 
Although he was being arrested, Jesus did say to the mob, he said in verses 55 and 56 of Matthew 26, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to catch, capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Here Jesus is now directing his teaching to the mob in an attempt to get them to think about the events that are now taking place. He begins by pointing out that his teaching was very public and was nonviolent in nature. They had heard him before, and he demonstrated that fact again to them in the way he handled his disciples' violent act. So why all the swords and clubs? He is attempting to get them to examine their thinking, since thought precedes action. Jesus, in all his daylight teachings, prompted peace. These people heard him teach. Why, under the cover of darkness, did they think he would be different and become violent? Obviously, at this point, the mob had not thought things through. They were just simply following their orders. They did not question the logic of their overlords. The mob just did what they were told. Or perhaps, if they did question the chief priests, they would likely have faced adverse consequences themselves and didn't want to do that, so out of fear, they just did what they were told. In any event, Jesus, knowing that these events were supposed to happen in this way, cooperates with the mob, and goes with them. They now take Jesus to the high priest, where also the other chief priests and elders are gathered to conduct a mock trial. Let's pick up the story in verses 59 and 60 of Matthew 26. It says there, The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Verse 59 tells us that this is not a legitimate trial. The whole governing body was looking for evidence to put Jesus to death. But they couldn't find any charge that would stick. Jesus remained silent as all these charges were brought against him. He did not defend himself. He felt no need to. He just overlooked what was being said, knowing that it was false. But now comes the point where the high priest questions him and says, I charge you under the oath by the living God. This is Matthew 26 and verse 63. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now to this question, Jesus makes the decision to respond. Why? In the Old Testament, the high priest was the intermediary needed to approach God on behalf of the people. 
because the people were interpreted as sinners and therefore separated from God. The chief priests believed that Jesus, like all the other people, was also a sinner worthy of death. So it is in this context that the high priest poses his question to Jesus. However, Jesus understands that the question being asked of him is one of identity. Now to deny his true identity is to deny his union with the Father. So he could not remain silent on this issue because he came to reveal the truth of our being as he told Pilate in John 18. I think it's around verse 36 or 37. So he answers the high priest and says to him in Matthew 26 in verse 64, You have said so. Jesus replied, but I say to you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus' response infuriates the high priest along with the entire assembly. Then the high priest tore his clothes. This is verse 65. He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? In verse 66, He is worthy of death, they answered. <laughs> Jesus gives them what they wanted, the evidence they needed to put him to death. It came from his own testimony about his true identity, and I might add ours which they could not accept. Another point worth noting here is Jesus told the truth about himself at the risk of his own bodily safety. Why would he do that? Did he have, as we say today, a death wish? No, he didn't. In fact, the very opposite is true. Jesus' concern here is with the spiritual well-being of the sonship of God, which includes all of God's creation. His concern here is with the permanent cleansing of our minds from guilt, sickness, and death. Jesus sets us an example here of how this is done. For it says here in the Course in Miracles that to accept release from guilt, quote, the insignificance of the body must be an acceptable idea. End quote. That's from the Manual for Teachers, Question 5, Section 2, Paragraph 3, and Verse 12. This statement is in keeping with Jesus' own teaching in John 6.63 6, that says, The Spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. So life as God created it is of the spirit, not of the body. That's the point being made here. Humanity's problem is that it incorrectly believes that life is of the body and that the spirit is a byproduct of bodily processes. Thus, we have a tendency 
to protect our bodies at all costs, since we see it as the source of our life. But it's the reverse that's true. Spirit makes the body. That is why Jesus admonished his disciples as he sent them out to teach in Matthew 10, 28, which we read earlier, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He knew that no one could take his life from him. In John 10, verses 17 and 18, he knew that his life was not in his body, or not of his body, I should say. So he allowed his body to be abused. And that is what Isaiah meant when he wrote in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He bore our suffering in his body in order to make our errors more clear to us. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Why? Because we mistakenly believe that life is of the body when it is not. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, uh, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Those that condemned him represent us. Remember, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the whole assembly there said, he is worthy of death. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, this is a, a bit of a mistranslation. The Hebrew word translated punishment in verse 5 is actually better translated as instruction or discipline. Thus, a more accurate reading is the instruction that brought us peace was on him. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was trying to teach us. And by his wounds, therefore, we are healed. Why? Because Jesus recognized that his life was of the spirit, not of the body that was being tormented. Thus, he knew that to allow his body to be beaten and killed would have absolutely no effect on his life whatsoever. And if we can also accept that interpretation as being true, then by his wounds we have been healed. So with that said, we will bring this episode of Change Your Mind About You to a close. Thank you for listening today. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, reminding you that Jesus knew beforehand that Judas would betray him. Yet he still considered him an a, a companion and friend. He overlooked what appeared to be a sin and chose to see Judas as he truly is instead. As a, as a brother, as a companion. He taught the disciples that in spite of his unjust arrest, Nonviolence was the appropriate response. He did not need their defense, 
because he knew no one could take his life away from him. And finally, he revealed who he really was to the world at the risk of his own bodily safety, teaching us by example that life is of the spirit and not the body. In the next episode, we will continue our discussion of the events that took place during Jesus' crucifixion to see what more he has in store for us to learn. So, until next time, take good care and be well, my friends.